You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 86. And today we're asking the question, do we have adequate models of accident causation? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. And Drew, in the last couple of episodes, we've uh, taken the liberty of talking about some foundational papers in safety and I think it was in our episode last, well, a couple of weeks ago on Hamil Bertie's paper, The Paradox of almost totally safe transportation systems that I mentioned what I thought was quite a foundational paper by Jens Rasmussen sorry, in the late 1990s. And so I thought we could discuss that. So do you want to kick us off with some background into Rasmussen? Sure, David. Um, I know some of our listeners have complained that we're a little bit scripted and not very bantery in these episodes. So I feel obliged to point out for everyone that David's notes here just say, at this point, Drew will provide general background on Jens Rasmussen and then have nothing left. So, so I thought I'd start off by... And Drew, sorry, so I, just, I just got in. And the reason I said that was, Drew, as such an esteemed safety scholar and someone as important as Rasmussen, you should just be able to roll that off your tongue. But true to academic form, Drew did have to take a few minutes just to check a few a few points. Uh, well, I'll tell you in a moment exactly what I was checking, David, because my immediate thought as an academic was a thing called the Erdos number. Have you heard of the Erdos number before? No, I'll learn along with our listeners. So, so Erdos was this mathematician who was just an extreme collaborator. So there are lots and lots of papers that have Erdos as an author. And because he collaborated with so many people, everyone in academia can now work out how socially distant they are from Erdos based on co-citations. And so it's like a mark of prestige to have a low Erdos number, how many steps there are between you and Paul Erdos. And I found out that Jens Rasmussen is so influential that there is such a thing called a Rasmussen number, which is everyone in safety science is only a few citations removed Actually, not just citations, co-authorships, a few co-authorships removed from Rasmussen. And so what I was checking was I know that David Woods co-authored directly with Rasmussen and Sid Decker was a student of David Woods and has co-authored with him. And so I wanted to check. So I've co-authored with Sid and you've co-authored with Sid. Does that mean that our Rasmussen number is three? Because So I wanted to check, has Sid actually ever co-authored with Rasmussen? But then I realised you and I have both co-authored with Woods. Yes. So we have a Rasmussen number of two. Oh, wow. That's exciting. So then, Drew, what's your Erdos number? <laughs> have, you, have you done that calculation? Oh, it, it, it's very high because you have to trace all of mathematics into computer science and then through computer science till you get to me. Ah, uh, Okay. Yeah, so, so Rasmussen is sometimes thought of as like the granddaddy of safety science. And they talk about Rasmussen's grandkids, the sort of generation of people who are directly influenced by his work. And so with Rasmussen numbers of two, you and I both qualify. Uh, very good. And I think, Drew, like I, I familiar with the work, but not being that involved in whether it's an age thing or an academic experience thing, not being that involved when Rasmussen was sort of central to these ideas you just hear about the influence that that he had as an author and this whole new view collection of authors being sort of referred to as Rasmussian kind of in their thinking. And when I was reading this paper that we'll talk about today, some of these sentences and some of these paragraphs could be pasted into a human organizational performance text in 2021 and be seen to be very new, uh, very new ideas. And, you know, it's an almost 25 year old paper that we're going to talk about. Yeah, so when we were talking about Amal Berti in the last episode, uh, I think it was episode 85, we mentioned that there are a lot of ideas that sort of originally come from Amal Berti that have seeded their way into other work. Rasmussen just has a really heavy influence 
and not not just on new view authors, but on authors who you wouldn't really consider new view, who have in fact argued very heavily with the new view. There's almost no one in modern safety science who hasn't like taken on board some of his key ideas. There are different ways of sort of breaking up the field of safety science into different fields and approaches, but you can't really take a Rasmussen field because you know, there are people in safety engineering who draw on his work. There's people in what we think of as you know the new view. There's people much more at the like cognitive psychology and human factors that follow his work. You know, pretty much the only people who haven't been influenced are people who take a very, very quantitative, almost um, epidemiological approach to injury causation. And even in this paper, though, there's a there's a whole section on probabilistic risk assessment when looking at different types of hazards in different types of systems. So when I was reading through, I thought he had almost causal event tree diagrams that would be similar to something that Levison would publish in Stamp and had some, um, you know, leanings towards some, you know, quite specific uh, quantitative risk management approaches in certain systems. So it did seem to be a bit, it did seem to connect a lot of different thinking into quite a, a, a clear narrative about how we need to think about safety and our organisations. Yeah, he, he almost predates the split between system safety and occupational health and safety, at least in terms of thinking. You, today, safety engineering and safety social science hardly talk to each other at all. There's a few people who sort of step across the boundary like Levison. But Rasmussen was already just like straddling right across both fields. Um, you, know, you don't have many social scientists who talk about risk assessment or who are just like familiar with how the techniques work. But Rasmussen worked in the nuclear industry. He's very heavily steeped in that stuff. Andrew, I don't know what I don't know what's in store for for you or I, but you know the influence of Rasmussen was such that a couple of years ago, when he when he did pass away, he had special issues of safety science. He had a dedicated conference, and you know almost a um, you know an outpouring of reflections from you know the who's who of everyone in in safety science today. So definitely impacted the thinking uh, of a lot of people. So and this paper, I think is this paper is one of my favourite papers, Drew, and and we'll sort of. Listeners will probably hear why on the way through, but and it's easy to get your hands on, so well worth a read. It's about thirty pages long, so we won't talk about everything that's in it, but very much well worth a well worth a read. Yeah, that, 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 that's my dream, David. Is I don't want a retirement party or a um, funeral. I were on a workshop dedicated to how my work has influenced other people, and actually had to have zero people show up to it. All right. All right well, <laughs> well, one of us will get one. Uh, if we have a pact to do one for each other, at least one of us will get one. <laughs> yeah, should we talk about the very basics of the paper like we usually do? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so this is a single author paper. From a time when single author papers used to be a lot more common, safety science used to be filled with these almost like essay theoretical style papers. It's called Risk Management in a Dynamic Society, a Modeling Problem in the journal Safety Science, uh, published in 1997. Although I have a suspicion that it might actually have been published a couple of years earlier somewhere else and has been around in a few versions. Um, I've seen it cited as earlier than 1997. Yeah, and Drew, I think when I had a quick look just on just on Google Scholar, it had three and a half thousand citations, so very well-referenced publication. You know, it's cited 150 times a year uh, since it was published, so that's um, that's very heavily cited. So, Drew, in this in this article, and, and you might get it from the title, Risk Management in a Dynamic Society, a Modelling Problem, Rasmussen posed the question that in spite of all of our efforts to design safer systems, we still have these large-scale accidents. And so his basic question that he stated in the paper was, do we actually have adequate models of accident causation in the present dynamic society? And I think, Drew, at this time, in whether it was the mid or towards the late 90s, feels like Rasmussen's thinking was trying to make sense of the emerging complexity science and systems thinking, this tension between normal accident theory and, and HRO theory, this relationship between the safety work processes. He talks a lot about risk management and other safety work processes and the dynamic real-time risk situation that, that people face and trying to, trying to work out if our safety science models that, and approaches that we had were relevant or maybe not were relevant, maybe we're right. I don't know if right's the right word to use, um, but were appropriate given those, you know, other sort of theoretical context. 
And I also really like, Drew, the way that Rasmussen sort of frames and describes problems. And so he offers kind of frameworks for thinking and action. So this is actually, even though it's a theoretical paper, tackling quite a big question, there's still quite a lot of practical direction and thought uh, in in this article. I don't know if you got the same out of reading it, but it was um, it was grounded in someone who obviously understood how work happens in organizations. Not just like normal work, but also how safety work happens. So, you know, I get the real flavor when he's talking about, you know, do we have adequate models that he's read dozens of accident reports <laughs> and he's thinking about how those accident reports describe the accidents and how they describe the causes and what sort of methods people use and what sort of diagrams they draw. And so th- th- there are a couple of like key diagrams in the paper one of the ones that I don't think is in there, but I'm just picturing my own head, is he's working in a world where most people think of accidents not necessarily as like a totally single line of events. It's not like a chain of dominoes, but they are thinking of accidents as this set of discrete causes that causes cause other causes, and those causes cause the next set of causes, and those causes cause the accident. And you can draw the accident as this network graph of things causing other things that bring into the accident. And when people talk about a linear model, that's really what they mean. It's not a single line, but this this causes that, causes that in, in all sorts of combinations. And he's just sort of saying that's how people think of it, but that doesn't capture the dynamism of what's going on, the way in which organizations aren't just made up of events causing other things. They're made up of movements and people and pressures. And you need to describe those things. You can't just describe the raw events. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk about that, those, those pressures, because at, at the heart of what we'll talk about in this paper today and this modelling problem was what he talks about, these these, comp- these constantly competing pressures. And, you know, we would talk today about gold conflict. Uh, we might, you know, talk about efficiency, thoroughness, trade-off and 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 these things, but drift into failure. It's But these he sort of talks in quite practical terms about how, real organizations face these constant tension and pressures, which means that our risk management uh, models can't be static and they also can't be linear because of the way that these different pressures interact with each other. And Drew refers to this all as like the risk management system. And this is before we probably think of enterprise risk management systems and the thing we have today. And at the time, he was really just talking about the the broad ecosystem of how risk uh, attempts to be managed with uh with high-risk technologies and why I think he called it in a dynamic society in the title rather than organisation because he's really drawing in this entire socio-technical system of people outside as well as inside the organisation. So legislators as well as the managers, planners and operators inside and also the communities and and governments. He sort of says that this risk management system and the organisations is a system that's stressed by fast-paced technological change and a lot happening in, in the 90s in leaps and bounds in automation and, and software, an increasingly aggressive competitive environment. So lots of the the, the liberalization and deregulation and, and market-based economies, and then these changing regulatory practices and public pressures, um, different models of regulation um, and, and different regulatory uh, structures and expectations. And, and these are the types of different pressures that were kind of stretching and and squeezing the, the risk, the entire risk management system around these technologies. David, I probably should just throw in here, because we've got quite a broad cross-section of listeners, the, the sort of environment that Rasmussen is working in, not as an academic, but the practitioner environment, that these organisations, particularly things like nuclear power or aerospace, that are working with the sort of big safety critical systems that involve formal risk management systems. Remember, this is at a time when not every organization had a risk management system. It's something that flowed out of the highly critical industries into other industries later. But all of those risk management practices were based on models of failure where the technology features very, very heavily And some of the procedures and human behaviours get added in and people tell themselves they're taking a systems approach because they've thought about the operator, not just about the tank. But you won't see a manager appear anywhere in any of those risk assessments. The idea that the people performing the routine, the idea that the person pushing the button exists within an organisation 
doesn't get taken into account. They either push the button or they don't push the button. We forget about the fact that they had to come to work and they have to go home that day and they have other things that they have to do. All we care about is does the button work and does the person pushing the button work? Which failure is it? That failure then feeds into the model that tells us whether the nuclear reactor is going to melt down or not. And Rasmussen is saying, look, you've got to broaden out beyond the te physical technology, beyond the software, beyond the procedure, because the organization matters for the risk and probably matters more for them the risk than just the physical technology does. And he went really far in his explanation, Drew. I, I like you said that about um, why you can't do that. And it's quite a straightforward read about saying, basically says in summary that there's there's no real point looking at individual risk management practices. So for example, something like a job safety analysis or a safety case, there's almost no point looking at the person pushing the button or that component that fails like in these complex systems because the way that we need to model these these systems requires what he calls functional abstraction, not structural decomposition. So don't break it down and look at does each individual component work. You've actually got to look at how the system's functioning and the pressures and and constraints and and boundaries of that system. So like as Sydney Decker would say in Drift into Failure, we need to always be going up and out, not down and in. And that's direct, um, I suppose, direct translation of one of the ideas in this paper. Yeah, I'll pause you for a moment, David, because that's, that's Sydney's translation of it. And one of the fascinating things about Rasmussen is everyone takes that basic idea and translates it in different ways. So if you look at Leveson's work, um, and I think we're actually planning next week to have a look at one of Leveson's papers, Leveson sees functional abstraction just as the opposite direction to structural decomposition. So Leveson would say, I believe, that she is following Rasmussen's ideas. And so what she does is she then draws a diagram that just extends the system beyond the technology to include a layer for the managers, a layer for the planners, a layer for the legislators, and builds in loops to show how all of those things are interacting and influencing the safety of the system. So you can go up to that level, you can go down to the level of whether the valve is working or not within the same representation. Decker interprets it to say, look, once you go, you need to go up because you can't go down. <laughs> you, once you start abstracting, you get to the real important stuff. And then you've got other people, for example, with axi maps who sort of sit somewhere in between who see the different levels of abstraction more as sort of layers of looking at things. And you can look at things at each layer and see the causes separately at that layer. Um, and yes, the layers connect, but it's helpful to look at each layer because different people have responsibility for each layer of the causation. And they would all say that they are applying this idea, functional abstraction instead of structural decomposition that Rasmussen is talking about. Yeah, thanks, Drew. Well, well explained. I suppose it's we talk about going back to the source and that, and it's very hard to, I mean, there's always a, a layer over the top. And in fairness to, to Levison is, um, Jens drew some very similar diagrams inside this paper with modeling systems. Oh yes. I don't think any of those people are incorrect. They're all taking Rasmussen's idea and then saying, okay, so what does this mean? What do we do with this insight? Um, but everyone has a slightly different way of taking that insight and turning it into, which is the like, forever challenge in safety is people have great ideas, but what do you do with them? Eventually got to turn into a method. And once the idea has gone into a method, it's not quite the same idea anymore. Yeah. And, and Jens is not quite the same idea, but he does, he does have a better go than most at, at trying to say what he thinks should happen. And so he says, don't really spend time focusing on action, action sequences and occasional deviations or human errors. You have to create a model of the behavior shaping mechanisms in your system in terms of constraints, boundaries, acceptable performance, and subjective criteria for guiding adaptation to change, change situations, change circumstances. So he has a fairly deliberate shot over any model of unsafe behaviors and you know linear models of accidents being useful in modeling risk. Instead, he sort of points to this holistic systems approach, very similar to what we might understand in the HOP principle today around context drives behavior. He's saying you have to model the context inside your system so you know what behaviours that that context is going to going to create. And this paper kind of spells out a lot about that principle well. Andrew, finally, I actually didn't realise the words guiding adaptation were was was in this paper when we did the work to, about guided adaptability at the end of my PhD with David Woods. But I'm sure 
somewhere in the back of David Wood's mind was knowing that he'd read that somewhere and it was a useful term to use. So maybe that's directly, I don't know if you got, if you use a word in a theory that comes directly out of Jens's paper, whether that puts you as a one instead of a two <laughs> on the Rasmussen. But no, I think he actually got a directly co-author and um, Woods okay. had worked in the same lab for a while. So he definitely gets a one. So yeah, absolutely. So so Drew, the paper starts with a evolution to the theoretical approaches. So it sort of talks through what we've done in safety up until now and where we've now arrived. And when I say now, the mid nineties arrived at this broad understanding of, you know, the design of our individual work systems and how we understand the decisions within those systems. And Rasmussen just argued that, you know, when he looked around our, our risk management and safety models, he just felt that they were insufficient for looking overall at the risk management of systems and suggested at you know, the introduction of this paper that we actually need an entirely new conceptual framework. Yeah. Rasmussen doesn't say this directly, but he's, he's really thinking about this in probabilistic terms constantly. So his idea of just like what it means for something to cause something else is just so fundamentally different from lots of people in safety even today. Um, yeah, there are lots of people who have this idea that cause is deterministic. And when Rasmussen talks about guiding and shaping factors, he's basically, I think, making a much clearer case than Holnagel does, that your accidents always have a probability of happening. And so the things that cause accidents are always like constantly causing them. They're just causing them with very low probability. And so it doesn't make sense to talk about, you know, what are the causes and remove the causes or control the causes because they're always just there. What you can do, though, is change those probabilities. You can shape the likelihood of things happening. You know, the behavior that is going to lead to the accident is happening right now in your organization. But that behavior has a low probability of causing an accident. A different similar behavior might have a slightly higher probability. Maybe we can reduce the rate at which the most dangerous behavior is happening by shaping something that we do with management. We're not removing causes or controlling causes or eliminating causes. They're there all the time. We're just changing how much influence they have on each other. And th that's sort of the whole way Rasmussen sees the world, is the causal field, field is filled with these unknown but very real probability of things happening. And we can make those probabilities go up and down. We just can't draw a perfect map of how they're all connected to each other. And why would we bother? Because we don't need to, as long as we can understand the factors that make them go up or the factors that make them go down. Yeah, Andrew, he does also you know, talk about things that are always present and you know, it's a matter of when, not if. And there's also some things that were definitely surprised, well, initially counterintuitive, but but potentially logical afterwards that, you know, more layers of protection and greater safety margins is potentially more dangerous than narrower safety margins and less risk controls. And we'll talk about that in a moment, but there's some, there are some significantly different ideas in, in this paper at the time. Andrew, I like the way... So maybe that's the next section of the paper after he talks about risk management generally is he just talks about the problem space and, and, and does that quite well. So he says, look, to have an accident, you basically need to have a loss of control of a physical process. This is an accidental cause of events. No one plans to lose control. That these events, these accidental events are shaped by the activity of people. And then safety, therefore, depends on the control of people's work processes. And I don't think any one of us, anyone in any branch of safety thinking would argue with that sort of sequence of state statements, Drew. I think that's quite a logical, you know, we lose control. We don't mean to. There's people involved. And if safety needs to depend on the control of, you know, what people are doing in, inside the system. I don't think anyone literally disagrees with that. I think the trouble is that everyone has their own immediate derived thoughts of that. And people disagree with each other's derived thoughts. And so that, that's why I think a lot of people think that people like Holnagel and Decker don't think that that's true because they don't like to focus on that because they don't like the implications that people draw from it. But you know, Rasmussen very clearly believes that accidents are loss of control events. And I've never really seen any of the New View authors contradict that. They just don't like the fact that people see accidents as loss of control events. So they say, okay, we need more control. And that's the bit that new view people disagree with is the idea that new, more control actually reduces the likelihood of that loss of control. Yeah, that's, um, that's, a, that's a good point, Drew. And um, 
and Rasmussen sort of said, look, our current approach in say after that sequence of events that we just talked about, or that sequence of statements. So our current approach involves to manage safety, we try to motivate our workers and operators, we train them, we guide them, we constrain their behavior with rules and equipment design to increase the safety of their work performance. So we're looking at directly working on the task and the behavior of the individual and sort of says at the time, which is again, early to mid nineties would be with complete, none of our models capture these shaping factors that are, that are driving, that, that are dynamically changing inside the, the risk management system. And so Rusmikin quite clearly then argues that this command and control top-down prescriptive approach, it may, may be effective. He was quite diplomatic, sort of, it may be effective in a very stable situation where instruction and work tools could be based on, you know, quite a, clear task analysis, but said, you know, in the present society that he didn't see that this approach was adequate and and said that we require this fundamentally different view of system modeling, I suppose, subsequent to to this paper, we've got safety two and safety differently and hop and that. But Drew, in my, I don't feel like anything that's been written about any of those theories that we see as popular today, I don't think they've redefined accident causation like Rasmussen has attempted to do in this paper. And we did a three-part series on safety one versus safety two. And I feel like I got a more clear argument laid out in this paper, albeit before any of that language that we we use so commonly today. Yes, I think Rasmussen is a little bit more precise in how he uses some of these ideas. And Holnagel is drawing on those same ideas, but being less precise in what he means by them, which yeah, I personally find quite frustrating and confusing. As, as we'll get on to, there are a few... You know, one of the challenges is everyone in here, in this sort of space is really talking in metaphors, but they're, never, they're not always honest about the fact that they're metaphors. And the moment you sort of like try to realise what that thing actually means rather than what it's a metaphor for. So you were at the meeting, I think, where we were having an argument about trying to use the figure in Rasmussen's diagram as a basis for coming up with metrics. And if it was actually a like mathematical model of how the world works, it would directly give rise to metrics. But the more you sort of like try to think about what exactly is a boundary of performance, you realise that actually it's not a well-defined thing. I still think it's a good idea, Drew. I'm still looking for volunteers to to want to, <laughs> to want to work on that. I think it's got legs. But, but yes, I, I, I do think that this idea this idea that accidents can be ex- better explained by abstracting away from the sort of like direct interactions between causes and looking instead at the shaping factors over those causes is not something that I believe was expressed clearly in the literature before Rasmussen and is not something that anyone has successfully replaced. This is, I think, literally how most people, if they really stop and think about it, understand accidents to happen. Um, And just to be clear about what the sort of like underlying thing is, the idea is that any event that happens sort of proximate to a loss of control has a certain chance of happening always and is probably happening always. Uh, Sorry, sorry, it's probably happening, not always, but it's like happening often. It's happening, but most of the time we recover from it to the point where it doesn't even become a notable event. And so your chance of the accident happening is the chance of enough of those little events happening and of the recoveries not happening. That's what caused the accident to happen. And it looks afterwards like each of those events caused each other. But the reality is that they were all just constantly in this dynamic process of happening and then being undone and then happening and then being hidden and then happening and then being noticed and then being corrected. And that's not a helpful way of describing it. What's constant is these overarching things that are driving the probabilities up and down. And if we understand what those overarching things, that gives a better explanation of why was it this organization where the accident happened? Why was it at this time and this place? Um, It could, under this model, have been a fluke. Or it could have been that the probabilities were higher in this time or place than at other times and places. And we can look for things that cause those probabilities to be higher. Things to do with management, things to do with work pressure, things to do with safety management activities. Yeah. Or physical conditions, or or other other sort of factors. 
So, Drew, maybe just to test in, in specific practical terms, and this is something that would have come up later, but I'd say, so say I'm working beside an excavation or, or a trench um, completely unprotected. I probably still only got about a one in a 10,000 chance of falling in that trench because just by controlling where I walk, I could probably walk up and down that maybe one in 10,000 times. If I then put a barricade around it, I might have moved an order of magnitude away. And so we talk about layers of protection. I can very quickly get my risk probabilistically to like a one in a million chance. But then what you're saying is, you know, one day I'm beside that trench and it's soft ground or the wind blows in a certain direction or something else distracts me for whatever reason. And all of a sudden I've, I've fallen down and, and after the accident it seems so obvious to backtrack away from that event because that's what our accident models do. They sort of just start with a known known and make everything else a known known. Yeah. And, and if, we, if we look back with enough of a crystal ball, we can see that some of those times you were walking up and down the trench, the edge protection was in place. And some of the times it wasn't there, but you noticed and had time to put it back up or someone else noticed and had time to put it back up. And you, once you were walking down it and you were walking a little bit close and someone said, hey, mate, just step away from there a little bit. And sometimes you were running and sometimes you weren't. And each one of those things like temporarily drove up your probability of falling into the trench and then went away again. And any one of those times, your risk might have jumped up to one in 100 or one in 50. But still, it was low and you got lucky. Um, now, more likely than not, at the time when you fell in, some of those factors that were driving the probability up were present. But that's not the question that Rasmussen wants us to ask, is not why were these particular factors up at that particular time. It's were they systematically up? You know, if you're working for an organization that is short on cash and short on management supervision and not paying much attention to safety, then the times when you were running were much more often and the times you were close to the trench were much more often. And the time when there wasn't someone to say, hey, mate, were much less often. And your time to you know, put the edge protection back in when it was missing wasn't there. And so if we want to explain the accident, we're better looking at where were those pressures coming from than at the particular time you fell in, which particular probabilities happened to be spiking. Yeah, so Drew, the way to think about this might be more, and we'll move on, might be more like there's almost an infinite number of risks and ways of accidents occurring in your organisation. Every step that gets taken beside every single trench, every single metre of driving that happens. So your chance of actually going task by task, day by day, activity by activity and managing risk is kind of like always going to be a futile attempt. So it's almost like the capacity conversation that we'd have today, which is like, you know, worry about building capacity in your organization. And I think Rasmussen's probably early conversations are, are, are like that, looking at system uh, enablers and constraints, I guess, when he talks about behavior shaping factors. Yes, so, so should we talk a little bit, have we gone enough to start talking about the big sort of like figure three in the paper that's get copied on PowerPoints everywhere? Let's do that. I think we've, I think we've covered, yeah, covered the, the context well. So he's got this diagram, which is kind of, I suppose it's like a diamond shaped diagram and it'll be popular to everyone. We might, if I remember Drew, which yeah, it's a 50-50, we'll find out. Um, I'll paste the diagram in the comments when we post this episode, but a very popular picture in, in, in safety and well, at least in academic circles. And this is the one that I think is a huge potential for performance management, just to set the record straight through just before. So, and I'll explain it to anyone who wants to reach out. So human behavior is shaped by these objectives and constraints where we've got an objective we're trying to achieve and there's constraints around, around our ability to achieve that. And there's always going to be this natural migration of activity towards the boundary of acceptable performance. So in doing my work, what is acceptable? What's an acceptable standard for my work? And so what Rasmussen's done is tried to represent the mechanisms underlying this and says, you've always got this level of resources, which he calls economic an economic boundary. So how much resource can you bring to bear on the work? Then you've got this workload issue, which sort of is like, um, does the work, does the work that needs to be done, the objectives kind of match or not match in with the, the resources that are available? And what that'll do is that'll push the work towards the error margin or the margin towards safety. So it's quite simply, if you've got too much, too much demand and not enough supply in terms of resource, then you will not be able to maintain those safety margins and, and have an incident. At least, Drew, that's the way that I interpret this diagram. Yeah, the sort of blunt way of putting it is that management is always pressing people to be more efficient to do more work for less money. 
workers are always pushing to do work with the least amount of effort possible to get through the day without exhausting themselves. And both of those pressures don't like work directly against each other. They both push it in the same direction, which is people try to get their work done acceptably. And so both of those pressures are pushing you to push the boundaries of acceptable performance, to start taking shortcuts, to do the work a bit less completely, to do the work with a bit less attention. And this, this is like the most honest look at work I think I've seen in any safety paper. Amel Birdie does this a bit too, just be, be honest about the fact that people who go to work don't try to do every task perfectly. They try to do every task well enough, placing most attention on getting those tasks right that they need to get exactly right. And on the tasks that they don't need to get exactly right, they pay less attention, they do less work. They do the work acceptably, not perfectly, every time. And your management yeah. within the aggregate, however much they might say they care about other things, they want the work done. And they want the product out the door, they want the money to be coming in because that's what businesses do. And we can't pretend that those pressures don't exist. And it frustrates the hell out of me when I say accident reports that say, you know, there was commercial pressure to get this project done. As if like, you know, in every single project around the world ever, <laughs> there was not constant pressure to get the job done on time for enough money. Yeah. So, so true, which is again why I think there's some things that we can be, be monitoring in our performance measurement that might give us some insights into the real-time nature of risk in our business. And it is this combination as, as if I'm a manager in an organization, it's how efficient can I be? How much can I get for the resources that I put in? And for the workers, it's uh, how can I meet the acceptable requirements of my job for the least, the least effort? And so they're almost sort of that, yeah, like you said, Drew, they're, they're both pressures that, that, that push work um, towards being, you know, in, in some ways less and less safe. Um, yet we've got these safety margins. We've got what Rasmussen goes on. He talks about defense in depth. So he talks about we've got these all these different controls to try to protect ourselves now in the at the late 90s. And which means we've got lots of redundant controls that we actually never rely on and or we never use. And the failure of one control doesn't relate, doesn't result in immediate consequences to the person. So, like we were talking about just in that example earlier. So, Andrew, you've also got this situation now where well not now but um in our organizations where you know the safe the behavior of what someone else does uh depends on the possible actions of another person and so therefore what Rasmussen says is that any system that's designed according to this defense in depth where you've got these multiple controls in this big safety margin will always systematically degenerate so there's always going to be this pressure for cost effectiveness and we'll get this drift and this trade-off and we'll it would be constant effort required to maintain controls which are not sort of used in the work every single day. So th this bit is, I think, pretty important and really overlaps with the Amal Birdie episode we were talking about last week because when Amal Birdie was talking about almost totally safe systems, he was talking about systems that are still operating right at that boundary of acceptable performance. And the whole idea here is that safety is not about avoiding being at the boundary. Being at the boundary is inevitable. You are going to be pushed up against the boundary of acceptable performance. The question is, how do you operate once you get there? So how much of a buffer is there between the like virtual boundary that you're not going to let people go across and the actual boundary where the risk starts to escalate very quickly and people are likely to more likely to get hurt. Your people can be hurt even when you're not at the boundary. Um, people can be hurt even when you manage the boundary well. But once you get too far beyond the boundary, your risk just goes up exponentially. And so the question is, how do you manage things at that boundary? How do you stay without going over it? How do you rec so what do you sort of like put in place to create awareness that you're there, awareness that you might have just gone over so that you can step back? Um, awareness that locally the pressure is so much that performance has degraded to an acceptable standard. And so many organizations, when they're thinking about measuring safety, they think about it as if we're sort of like trending away from that boundary and that makes, you know, our numbers are going down means we're moving away from the boundary. And that's not true. Your number's going down, you're still at the boundary with everyone else. You're just there with less information. Yeah. And so Drew, what, what Russell talks about just at 
at the end of this section, he goes, you know, accidents are caused by events that are initiated by the normal efforts of lots of different people operating in their daily work context and re responding to this standing request to get my job done as efficiently as I can. And ultimately, at some point in time, there's a quite normal variation in someone's behavior that releases this, this accident sequence. And if, if it hadn't been this time with this particular cause, in inverted commas, it might have we think that it would have been avoided because of some new safety measure which we put in place. And the reality is it'll just be released by another cause at another point in time because he said we need, we don't have and we need this framework that understands the objectives, the value structures, the subjective preferences governing behavior, the degrees of freedom faced by the individual decision maker and um, the interactions of the people involved. And so that's what he's sort of saying is that just that's just, you know, what this model draws on is like, you know, this is these are the things that we need to pay attention to dynamically to understand, you know, which system or part of our system the next inevitable accident, you know, will occur in. Dave, we probably should start heading towards some conclusions here. And um fortunately Rasmussen at this point actually starts to give us some direct implications. He starts to fit different approaches to safety into this model he's provided. So he's talking about how, with, so remember this model is we're being pushed up against the boundary of acceptable performance. What are your strategies for dealing with the not wanting to go across that boundary too far? Your one approach, he says, is you just increase the margin from where the virtual boundary is to where you've completely lost control. So you basically put in a buffer space. That might be something that gives you extra time. It might be something that gives you just more room to make mistakes. Um, and I think this is where it sort of fits in with Perot's idea of normal accidents, that Perot is saying accidents happen when we've got really tight coupling or really high interaction complexity, when people can't recognize that they're across the boundary or they just don't have time to react once they've gone into the dangerous state. So we can just create more of a buffer. The second thing we can do is create sort of like just continual counter pressure. And so that's where theories like safety culture comes in is safety culture is about creating a third type of pressure. We've got pressure from management to be more efficient, pressure from workers to be less exhausted, pressure from safety culture to step away from the boundary of acceptable performance. And so we can constant, we can like consciously work with trying to build up that pressure. And that's like one theory of safety organizations is safety organizations just exist as a counter pressure to other pressures in the organization. But then he's got some more interesting stuff about making the boundary more visible. And so this is why some of our techniques might be a bit counterproductive because we build in extra protection that just hides from people where the real acceptable boundary is. Or we get too strict on our performance requirements and we sort of enforce this virtual standard of performance. People don't know what actually acceptable is. They only know what strictly acceptable is. And so people are stepping away from strictly acceptable all the time but they don't know that sometimes when they do that, it's fine. Sometimes when they do that, they step towards very unsafe. Andrew, the way I like to frame this in my mind, for those who, who like the human organizational performance frameworks and models, like particularly black line, blue line, is we talk a lot about workers imagine work is done, which is what's the gap between the black line and the blue line, how we think work should be done, how it's actually getting done. What this model is saying is that's irrelevant. What we need to worry about is the gap between the blue line, how work's happening, and the hazard, or where the boundary of acceptable performance is. So don't worry yourself with the, the blue line, black line. Worry yourself with the blue line, red line, because that's what's going to make visible for the work as it's actually being done when it starts to interact directly with that boundary or that, or that uh, you know, uncontrolled hazard. I guess, Drew, that's, I, I kind of like thinking it like that as well. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Yes, no, no I, I agree, absolutely. David, I see you've copied into the notes a really complicated diagram that tries to draw like Rasmussen's <laughs> map of how every safety theory fits together with every other theory that's going on at the time. This is, this is pretty out of date given that the paper is 25 years old, but was there some sort of particular insight from this that you wanted to throw in? Yeah, what Rasmussen was saying is that in safety or in risk management at the time, we've we've we're at the mid mid nineties, and we need to come to this realization in safety that we need a different model and different conceptual framework for understanding safety. And what he's drawing here is that other disciplines relevant to socio technical systems have already come to this conclusion. 
So management and organizational theories are already there with learning organizations, the work of Wyck and Senger, and decision research is already there with naturalistic decision-making models, some of the other uh, research areas that are that are sort of relevant to social context and organizations like social psychology are already there. So he was sort of putting this idea or this concept that he had alongside, you know, related disciplines that already had these kind of descriptive models in terms of behavioral traces rather than these kind of like normative prescriptive theories and models that we were so used to in safety. So I think he was putting that all in there as sort of validation that, you know, this is this this is about how we think about safety, just I don't know what the word <laughs> quickly growing up and matching the reality of organizations. Yeah, I find find the diagram fascinating because it sort of highlights how every theorist in safety, and Rasmussen is no exception to this, they, they pick and choose from other fields what they're going to bring in. So like Rasmussen has on this diagram sort of showed that naturalistic decision-making is like the epitome or the very latest in decision research, which I think lots of other people in decision research would strongly question. There are lots of competing ideas that are still alive and well and developing. And then, you know, in management theories, he goes straight into VIC and learning organizations and says, you know, anything else is just like scientific management and Taylorism. And you know, no, there's lots of other management science out there that's not Taylorist, but it's still not VIC. And in occupational safety, he's got like risk homeostasis as his pinnacle of the field, which Bit of a bit of a shortfall in the critical thinking there. Yes. Look, I don't, I don't know what the human sciences literature landscape looked like in the early '90s. I do think the the idea of safety as a transdisciplinary science and and needing to have descriptive models in terms of how real organisations work is sort of pretty consistent with what we spoke about in our manifesto for reality based safety science, which we spoke about in episode twenty, I think, Drew. So I think he's sort of saying, give us some models that reflect the real world understand sort of social theory human sciences trends and but again it served the purpose of his arguments quite well yes no no no. that bit i would agree with the bit that i would put as a takeaway for our listeners particularly any of our listeners who are doing phds or things like that is th- this is a constant project you 25 years ago rasmussen went out to these other fields and said this is where the other fields are at the moment and this is what safe our safety and my ideas are consistent with them. But someone doing the same sort of work today needs to go back out to all of those same fields, not just say, okay, these are the ones that Rasmussen brought in. And that's why we find like these single authors get from other fields get quoted again and again in safety far more than they are within their own fields, because someone like Rasmussen happened to read them and was a big fan and brought them in. But the rest of us need to do our homework as well. Yeah, great point, Drew. So, all right, practical takeaways. So I might start. So this paper's nearly 25 years old. There's some fairly clear explanations and 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 logic laid out about adjustments that should be made in our pursuit of safety that, Drew, I'm not sure have found their way entirely into industry and organizations yet. So drawing on these these insights across across other disciplines as well, this is this is well worth a read and 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 a reflection. And for those who spend a lot of time with some contemporary safety theories, you'll see a lot of the par- parallels and you just might find some some new ways of framing some of those ideas in, in ways that help. Yeah, I, I think there are a couple of places where they can definitely help us directly. I mean, obviously, given that he's talking about accident models, one of the big things is in our investigations is recognise that, invest- that it's not helpful either to get hung up on individual things that happened at the particular time and place of the accident, or to get hung up on just broad brush statements like there was pressure. But to look for, you know, what are the particular pressures that are in place against our across our organisation? What are the mechanisms that are helping people adapt to those locally? And how can we improve that dynamic management? Given that the pressure is inevitable, the mistakes are inevitable, that's the world we live in. Not much point in pointing that out in the accident report. Instead, look at you. How do we cope with being in that world? Yeah. Andrew, this idea of context driving behavior or what Rasmussen said here is behavior shaping factors. You know, when we're talking about hop a lot with human organizational performance, we think about it in terms of just 
in incident reports. So just understanding that it's, you know, it, we should ask the question of what failed, not not who who failed. But this idea of behaviour shaping factors is, is, is really important to think about in how we understand everyday work and looking at different everyday work situations and looking for the presence or the absence of different behaviour shaping factors, pushing away from safety, pushing towards safety. And I think you could do a lot with the what Rasmussen lays out in this paper and how you actually go and explore normal work in your organisation to try to understand you know, what those value structures and, 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 in, and constraints and conditions are in, in the type of work that you do. David, I just want to throw in a couple of practical examples here, and I'm sure you can give even better examples than I can, because it, it's, it's very tempting when you hear things like this to just to fall into defaults and to think about your culture and local leadership and time pressures and things like that. But there are some just like really straightforward environments that change the risk of work up and down. So we can look at, for example, you know, how much work are we doing at night? Is, is, that, is that changing? Are we doing more work at night than we used to? How much of our maintenance are we doing in the field versus in the garage? You know, the changes in the ratios of those things are changes in the boundaries and the pressures that we're facing. How much extra time, discretionary time, do people have? Do they have enough discretionary time that they're doing the things that they adjust their own work to just keep within that managing the boundaries? Or are they so much focused on getting the basic stuff done that they never have time to be conscious of the boundaries of doing things in their own workplace that help them step back? Yeah, Andrew, I think there's an infinite number of potential behavior shaping factors that are increasing risk and, and decreasing risk and and other factors in the business that are pushing more for efficiency and counter pressures pushing back for safety. And it's why this idea of just, if you're a safety professional, just how much time are you spending understanding you know, all of these ins and outs and nuances of work and people's experience of work? Because you know, it's not for an outsider to decide how these factors shape behavior. You actually need to find out from the insiders inside the system whose behavior you're interested in, the things that are shaping their behavior. Andrew, that's where we you know, we need to tap into, you know, sometimes it's sort of tacit uh, knowledge or, or decision-making. So so this is a really hard thing to get at. I don't think Rasmussen's saying it's easy and we're definitely not saying it's easy, but it's very important. And it's going to be different for every organisation. And so really you need to understand what are the factors in your organisation and your industry. Uh, we, we did a project with a school organisation that I won't talk about which organization it was, but it was supposed to be a workshop about safety. And one of the things we did was just an imaginative exercise. You get people to tell us, you know, imagine the next major accident has happened. Sort of where did it happen and how? And every single person in the workshop mentioned to us that over the last couple of years, class sizes had gone up and they had all got to that point where the class sizes were so much that they we're constantly running in this risk space that is just beyond the boundary of acceptable performance. And you, you wouldn't think of it in terms of safety. That's a, almost an um, industrial relations issue or a quality of education issue. But that was the big performance shaping factor that was obviously driving the safety of everyone working at the schools. And I think, Drew, here's this, this contextual framework that's a great example for these purposes, not a nice example for the people involved, but this idea that if there was one incident one day and you put one additional safety measure to cope with that one cause on that one day, then you're not really you're not doing anything to change the safety system because it'll just be another type of incident, another cause just resulting from the same behavior shaping condition um, in the organization. So sort of I sort of going back to Jim Reason's work, which is like you can't just keep swatting swatting at mosquitoes, you actually have to drain the swamp, you know, one of one of his quotes. And I think that's what that's the sort of the overarching conceptual framework that Rasmussen wanted us to have. Yeah, the, the picture that came into my head when you were saying that, David, was you've got a flood against a damn wall, and every time a hole springs, you stick a finger in one of the holes. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, sure, someone can do that, but you really need someone to step back and you know, get rid of that water yeah. pressing against the wall. Another good analogy, I guess. So, so second takeaway you've got here is understanding where the boundary of safety is. And so, sort of, you know, what is what we're saying is the acceptable boundary of performance, and what is the actual boundary of performance, and how visible is that? Yeah, Drew, there's these terms that we haven't explained, but you can read them about the perceived boundary and the functional boundary. So, where does our 
yeah, system kind of tell us the boundary is or the, the standard work tell us where it is and where's the actual functional boundary? Where does the hazard become clear and present danger? And so knowing creating visibility, like we said earlier, around those those things. And I think that's something that we don't do a lot in safety. And I mean, it, it's very present in some organisations. I thought a lot about aviation, Drew, as I was reading this paper. Like there'll be a, a standard process for, you know, on, on an approach, a rate of descent at a certain altitude, standard practice for the runway or for the environment. And then there'll be this minimum threshold, which is, you know, don't start this at an altitude lower than X or something. So that's a good idea of kind of like where this kind of perceived boundaries and kind of maybe this, this functional boundary. And I thought that aviation industry does a really good job at acceptable standards of work for like air traffic controllers and pilots. There's a really clear, there seems to be a really clear, acceptable, acceptable standard of work and a fairly visible boundary, safety boundary and margins in the system. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Drew, but I think we could learn a lot from lifting this paper out and thinking about the way that aviation gets managed. Yeah, I think that is something that aviation gets really right, because partly because they're very, very conscious and explicit of where those pressures are coming from. So, you know, they, they know that pilots aren't perfect and that pilots need to prioritise what they're doing so that they can focus on the most important things at the most important time. They know that there's this constant pressure, that there's some rules that are there because they save fuel and saving fuel saves money. And you're, a lot of the rules are there for those reasons, not for the safety reasons. So you need to know if the rule says, you know, don't go below this altitude, that it's that altitude because of the fuel savings or because of the noise. And the safety one is a thousand feet below that. That thousand one, that's hard because there's a hill there. Yeah. So Drew, the final takeaway and wrap up, um, I think Rasmussen's probably deserved a slightly longer episode today in any case. But this idea that all work faces constant efficiency pressure and needs to have constant counter pressure. Um, when you look at this model in this paper, and you can see this, these resource and demand pressures pushing work out towards the safety margin needs constant pressure, pushing it back and drawing down on extra resources and pushing back on extra demands. And so this is this is this is an important realization that organisations need to not fall in love with their own their own rhetoric around safety is the most important priority to know that your system is constantly pushing for faster, better, cheaper, and it needs to be constantly pushed back in a meaningful way, not a superficial or um, propaganda sort of way. And that's something that I think is a practical takeaway that we can build into the conversations we're having, asking people you know, when things get really tight for time, what is it important that gets done the right way every time it gets done? And what are the things that it's okay to just do acceptably? And have those conversations and you have people talk to each other and to you about what are the non-negotiable limits and what are the things that we do as well as we can, but not perfectly. Yeah, thought for a future episode. Um, I know um, Jim and Tony and Ron some colleagues just published their book on critical steps, which is, you know, this, this, what must go right. And um, there's a few papers in and around that. So maybe we can, we can talk about that in a podcast because I think that's a good call out Drew. you know, what must always go right or what must always be done to what acceptable standard of, to what acceptable standard. So Drew, I, I wrote a bit of an answer here for this one, but I'm just going to throw to you. You can answer it if you like. The question we asked this week was, do we have ad adequate models of accident causation? What's your, What's your thought? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to just throw that one straight back to you, Dave. Well, I'm interested in your thoughts because I said, look, you know, the answer that I thought is that, you know, after reading this paper and, and thinking through what's come over the last 25 years, I think that, you know, we may have some adequate models in the literature, but in in thinking about organisations, I, I don't think we often have adequate models shared across our organisations and industries. But Drew, I'm sort of, I'm interested in whether you think our, the literature is actually yet, yet to have adequate models of of safety. I think an adequate model requires a better understanding of how organisations try to influence safety. So it needs to draw more on the organisational literature about how organisations work. I think we have good enough models of how the accidents themselves happen, but those models aren't good enough to include in them the effects of our defences. Very often what seem to be good models when we turn them into defences, the defences don't work. So therefore the model cannot have been adequate. Great. 
work to do. Good. It means that the research is going to keep coming and the podcast can keep can keep coming as well. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organization. Join us on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 